That night, the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be, to be read, brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had erected for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would honor, rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man who the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on his head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor, and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse, and do just as you have suggested, for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate, do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, all the, and his, all his friends, everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's units arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. All right, uh, last week we started a series called Fixing Mrs. Jellybee Syndrome. And if you weren't there last week, that probably makes very little sense to you. So let me explain. Mrs. Jellybee is a character from a Charles Dickens novel called Bleak House, who was really excited about doing philanthropy work to help people all the way in Africa. But she was also a mother, and she was really so focused on her work in Africa that she completely neglected the real people right in front of her, like her husband and her kids. When she's first introduced, there's a kid with his head stuck between the railings. It's really dark, so it's hard not to step all over a kid. Uh, people assume the mother isn't home because she can't come to the door. And when they finally start talking to her, there's a kid that falls down the stairs and bonks her head several times. But Mrs. Jellybee hardly even blinks. People who have read this book have noticed that there's a lot of people who are kind of like that. And they call it Mrs. Jellybee Syndrome. That's when you're a lot like Miss Jellybee, where you become really obsessed with some abstract good thing you're doing all really far away, but you completely forget about the people right in front of you who you need to take care of. More broadly, it's about having your head in the clouds, looking at the world from 10,000 feet up, and not paying attention to the real needs in your life that people actually have. A lot of things in our culture encourages us to think like this. We learn about politics and we think, that all that really matters and what makes you a good person is whether you're on the right side of some big debate, not whether you love your family. We hear about big, terrible things going on all the, way, all the way across the world, and we forget that we can have a real impact right here in our own community. Um, 
we have a much bigger responsibility for the people closest to us than the people that are far away. We can send money overseas, and that's great, but if we don't love our neighbor, it's just ugly. So this series focuses on the kinds of things that we can see when we take our heads out of the clouds and focus on the little things. Because most of our lives have to do with the little things, because we do actually live on the ground. Last week, we talked about how when we live down here on the ground, which is what we actually do, uh, we have to deal with a lot of uncertainty. When you're looking at the world with Mrs. Jellybee eyes, you, think, you can think that you can plan out your whole life from 10,000 feet up with 100% certainty so you know for sure that everything will go exactly as you planned. But then you start to actually live your life, and you realize that things go completely different from what you expected. At that point, you can feel kind of paralyzed, especially when you're making tough decisions. It's always, impossible that, it's always possible that the decisions you make go totally wrong, but you still have to make them. But God created us to live in time, here on the ground. And that means that we actually live in the present moment. God doesn't usually send us angels and prophets that tell us what to do and exactly how it all work out. Normally, we have to use some kind of combination of prayer, talking to friends, and shrewd skills like wisdom and prudence to figure out what we should do. Of course, there's never a scientific experiment that gives you the right answer every time. Uncertainty and feeling anxious that you might be messing up is just part of being human. What that means is that all we can do is trust God with what it looks like to us like obedience, praying that he would bless our efforts and make them flourish, or at least forgive us if we made the wrong choice. And that kind of childlike trust is kind of beautiful. We've been looking at the book of Esther, which is one of the weirder books in the whole Bible. The name of God is never mentioned, and which we said really helps us with Mrs. Jellybee syndrome. Unlike in other books of the Bible, we aren't allowed to see the book from a hundred, the view of the book from 10,000 feet up. Instead, we have to look at it from the perspective of the, of the characters in the book, who are struggling to do what they think God was telling them to do, and who never really have that luxury of certainty. In the book, the king is trying to find a new queen and sends out messengers to find a beautiful woman all over the land to find the king a wife. Eventually, Esther, a Jewish girl, wins out and becomes queen of Persia. But Esther's uncle, Mordecai, accidentally runs afoul of some really big and important uh, government officials like Haman. And so Haman decides that he's not only going to kill Mordecai, but kill every single Jew in Persia. So Mordecai gets Esther to try to use her influence to stop Haman from killing the Jews. Esther's really clever, so she gets the king to flatter Haman a whole bunch, since he's super proud. So she gets the king to, um, so Haman is feeling like everything's going his way because the king is flattering him. So he gets some people to set up gallows so that Mordecai can be hanged. But that night, the king wasn't able to sleep, so he gets some, some of his servants to read to him about the stuff that's going on in his kingdom. He finds out that Mordecai saved the king from an assassination attempt, and so the king really likes Mordecai now, all of a sudden. Of course, the king still trusted Haman. So he gets him to come in and ask Haman, what should I do to honor someone who's did a lot of good stuff for me? But Haman thinks that the king is asking how the king should honor Haman. So he, and he has no idea that he's actually giving advice on how to honor his mortal enemy. So he says to throw this big, lavish parade and give him tons of money and gifts. So then the king says, yeah, go ahead and do that for Mordecai. I really like him. So that brings us to our passage, where Haman is fuming because he really thought that he was about to be honored 
but instead had to personally give all kinds of honor to the mortal enemy. So the book of Esther is really tailor-made for people like us, who don't have the luxury of knowing the future and have to make some complicated decisions, like who do I marry, and what job do I take, or what do I retire, or where should I live, where there isn't a Bible verse or an angel that tells you exactly what to do. I mean, most of the people there didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> for the most part, you really don't know how the story will turn out. Esther and Mordecai made some daring moves, and there's no narrator floating above their heads to say, this was a great move, or this was a huge mistake. And so what you're left with is a great imitation of real life. Just like the characters in this book, you have to piece together what you think about God and the world and the story of the gospel, as well as just plain common sense, and try to figure out for yourself what Esther and Mordecai should do, never knowing for sure that whether they're right until the events actually play themselves out. And that's really similar to our own lives. We have to discern what we should do with ourselves using all kinds of methods like prayer and the Bible and common sense just to do what we think God wants us to do. But in all this uncertainty, there's one thing that the book of Esther is 100% certain about. And as hard as it can be to believe, it's the one thing that we can be certain about in life. You could see it already in last week's passage where Mordecai tried with all of his uncertainty to figure out what God wanted him and Esther to do. He said, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. In other words, despite the Persians and Haman seeming to have complete power over the Jews to kill them or keep them alive, the Jews are actually in no danger at all. How could he be so confident? How does he know that help will arise from the Jews from another place? As we talked about last week, there are certain passages where God really is just under the surface. If you know the rest of the Old Testament, you know the reason Mordecai knows that the Jews will never be destroyed. God made a binding deal with Israel, that he would bless them and make them a blessing to the whole world. They would be the ones that carry the presence of God to the whole world, and so they would be the antidote to the world's disease. Through Israel, the world would come back to God's great good intention, and God loved Israel. That meant that he would never allow anyone to destroy them even when Israel disobeyed God constantly, acted in evil just like all the other generations, and did everything they could possibly do to destroy themselves. God loved them, and he kept his covenant with them, even when they never kept their end of the covenant. Nothing could ever stop God's love for them. What Mordecai is doing here is taking the whole long story of Israel and distilling it into a few words. If you don't do anything about it, somebody is. God's simply not going to let his people be destroyed. God's love for his covenant people will never fail, no matter what they do. He kept them alive through slavery in Egypt, through wandering the desert, through exile, all of it while Israel was doing nothing but evil. Those are times when the 10,000-foot-up view is important, because Mordecai knows what God's priorities are, and he's applying them to his own situation. Mordecai isn't saying, what you do isn't important because it's just part of the Bidlon story. And he's saying, this Bidlon amazing story is here, and it's better to be a part of it than it is not to. And that's the same thing that God says to us. He has this amazing story of how he's saving the world. And we could decide not to be a part of it, and the same story would go by without a hitch. We could even just decide to do the bare minimum to try to get saved. But why would we? Making your life a part of the big, beautiful story of the gospel is the most fulfilling life you can have. Why not be a part of it? In our passage, we get practically the same idea from a different perspective. 
Haman is talking to his friends about how mad he is about Mordecai getting honored and messing up his plans. And his friends give him very similar advice to what Mordecai gave Esther. They tell him, if Mordecai, before whom you've already begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Again, you might ask, how do they know that? On the one hand, you might expect Mordecai to know that the Jews would never totally be destroyed, even if he doesn't say it. He is a Jew, and he probably knows his Old Testament, and he knows God's covenant to protect and bless his people. That made sense. But here we have confirmation of that covenant from a totally different Gentile people. How do they know that Haman would never be able to kill all the Jews? They probably don't know anything about the Old Testament and the God of Israel, and if they did, they probably wouldn't believe it. If you asked them, they probably would have said something like, you know, it's just one of those things. For the Gentile characters in Esther, it's just some kind of curious thing that's always true, even if they have no idea why. Don't mess with the Jews is like, don't feed the gremlins after midnight. They've seen this movie play out over and over, that when you try to oppress the Jews too hard, bad stuff happens to you. Nobody knows why it is, but it is. And you don't want to be the one that tries to go against that advice. Because things will go wrong for you. And sure enough, stuff really does go wrong for Haman. Eventually, his plot to kill the Jews is revealed, how he forged an order from the king's hand to do it. The king is especially mad because it would have meant that his own queen would be killed. So Haman's already been thoroughly embarrassed by having to give all kinds of honor to Mordecai, his enemy, and now he's really in trouble with the king. Haman tries to beg Esther for his life, which is what the painting in the bulletin shows. But the king comes in at the worst possible time and interprets his begging for assaulting Esther, so he's executed. It turns out that the king's orders, the king orders Haman to be hung in the very same gallows that Haman had constructed for Mordecai. In the long run, Haman's friends were right. The plans that he had set out to kill all the Jews failed spectacularly, and they only got him killed. But they not only got him killed, but got him thoroughly embarrassed in the most ironic ways possible. And even though God isn't mentioned, you can tell he's working through a number of really weird coincidences. Mordecai happened to stumble onto the plan to kill the king so he could foil it. The king can't sleep on the exact night before Haman's plot would be carried out. And he asks for someone to read to him, and they turn to the exact page about how Mordecai saved his life. And finally, the king returns from the garden at just the right time to interpret Haman's begging as an assault. If this were just a normal movie, you'd think that this was bad writing, with all kinds of coincidences that just happened to work out. The Jews in the book have plot armor. They can't be destroyed, and the whole plot bends over backwards to accommodate that. The Gentiles in the story probably think the Jews are just weirdly lucky. But people who have read the Old Testament know that this is just how God is working in the book, in the background through a number of weird coincidences that happen to make things work out like they should. And you can probably recognize similar coincidences in your own life that all lead you to exactly where you're supposed to be for God to use you. It happened for me, too. It's possible that one of the main reasons I'm at this church is because my paperwork to start the licensing process got lost on the shuffle for about three or four months in the summer of 2021. Who knows? Maybe God was using that so I would end up here instead of some other church. So it turns out that the Jews had a pretty sweet deal. Everybody recognized that they were a charmed people, and nothing they could, they could do could ever hurt them. Nothing was certain but death, taxes, and that the Jewish people would somehow survive. 
And all of this was really because they had a covenant with God that even as they disobeyed him, his loyal love would never leave them, and they'd be blessed and they would bless the world. Now the New Testament says that the same covenant has been extended to the Gentiles, and all of the people have come to believe in the God of Israel and worship his Christ. And wow, would you look at that? That's us. Isn't that lucky? Now we get that weird charm on our lives, which isn't really a charm, but is the eternal love that God has for his people. And now his people includes us. If you, if you hang out in Christian circles often, you might hear the phrase, in the end, God wins, a lot. Most of the time, it's used as a summary of the book of Revelation, which is super complicated, but in the end, God wins. And it's really useful to keep that in mind. Sometimes you look at the world and you think that there's nothing good that can come out of the stuff that's going on. It's important to re remember that there's no reason for despair. We know the end of the story. God will prevail over evil and darkness and allow us to live in peace and justice in the new heavens and the new earth. But if the covenant that God had with Abraham and the Jews has been extended to us, that means that, in the end, the church wins too. That means that none of our efforts to be faithful to God will ever be wasted. We can bang our heads against the walls trying to do something for God. We can take care of the people in our church, love each other with everything we have. And that's all never going to be wasted. Yeah, and we can think that all those things will be wasted. We can think that they're, they're, they're only small things. But that's just because we're looking at it with Mrs. Jellybee eyes. After all, the kingdom of God is built by small things. It's built by small acts of love for our neighbor. It's built by lovingly taking care of your kids or by kids taking care of your parents when the time comes. It's by, built by working extra hours for your family or volunteering some of your free time to feed your, your hungry or to fix something that's broken. The kingdom of God is profoundly human because it exists among humans and is kept alive by human acts like walking into church when you don't feel like it or giving a hug to someone who really needs it. And in the grand scheme of things, you might think you're not making a big difference. But giving love to one person can save them a lot of heartache and also save those that they come in contact with and so on forever. It's like a mustard seed, which is so small, but when planted, becomes huge. But when you first plant that mustard seed, you can be forgiven to think, for thinking that you haven't done a whole lot. It really doesn't look like you have. But God's covenant says that he will bless our efforts and even our mistakes and use them to save the world. Jesus said, the, king, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. It will never fail and it will never die because God himself is the one that's sustaining it. The church has enemies just like Haman all over the place. But it turns out that a life humbly lived in service to God and neighbor, the kind of life so many in our little church live, has enormously greater lasting significance than the lives of the most powerful people in our world. Because God is protecting and blessing every one of their efforts. Who knew that the life of someone like Mordecai would be so much more significant in the long run than the life of the big bad guy Haman? And all that is an extension of God's long-standing promise to bless his covenant people and bless the world through them as they trip and stumble through life only to quietly see lives changed, people converted, and families built. It's true that it's really hard to eliminate uncertainty when you're trying to do what God wants you to do. But what we can be certain about is that God will bless us and will bless the world through us. It's been true for 4,000 years, and it's a truth that's never really failed. It may look like our failures and evil comes upon us, but in the end, God wins, and the church wins right along with him.
And it's so true that even the people who knew nothing about the covenant that God has with us and the loyal love that he has for us know it's true, just like Haman's friends knew it 2,500 years ago. So when you're uncertain about what God wants you to do and what your place is in this great big story of the gospel, it really is as simple as just doing your best to do what you think God wants you to do. Look at the opportunities you have, look at the priorities God has, and try to pitch in however you can. Because we know with complete certainty that God will bless your efforts as he uses you to save the world. Because his love and his purposes never fail. Let's pray. Great God, we thank you for providing us and for working everything together for our good. Help us to trust you so that we can proceed with confidence through times of uncertainty, knowing that in the end, you win and we win with you. Amen.